When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm very excited to be joined by someone I have long admired from afar, the writer and historian Megan Kate Nelson. She's the author of several exciting books, including Trembling Earth, A Cultural History of the Okefenokee Swamp, Ruined Nation, Destruction and the American Civil War, and The Three-Cornered War, The Union, The Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West, which was a finalist for the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in History. She's back already with her next book. It's called Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation in Reconstruction America. It comes out today from Scribner, and we're lucky enough to have her with us to talk about it. Dr. Nelson, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. Now, this book is unusual in a number of ways. Um, And just to start with one, when it comes to explaining how Yellowstone became a national park, it really foregrounds the sausage making, and it spends very little ink on kind of romantic reveries to scenic, unblemished nature. Um, you know, you might have written actually the first book with preservation in the title that never mentions John Muir once. <laughs> and I know you're writing about an earlier period, but still, it's, it's you know, it's, it's striking and it's refreshing. Um, but I'm still curious at the outset here about how your own relationship with and thinking about natural park, national parks and wilderness has, has changed over your life. You know, when, when did you come to see national parks, these places that many think of as being kind of timeless, unchanged wildlands as places with histories? That is such a great question. You know, I grew up in Colorado in the suburbs of Denver, so out on out on the plains. Um, but my maternal grandmother and her sisters had cabins in the mountains uh, on national forest land, not national park land. But so I spent a great deal of my childhood, especially during the summer up in the mountains, up among the trees, hiking. Uh, My aunt was a big birder. And so we had lots of adventures kind of in the forest when, when I was a kid. And then my parents every August would take us on a vacation, which And pretty much my brother and I resisted our entire childhood um, because we wanted to go to Disneyland. Uh, But instead, uh, we were piled in the car 
and with, you know, two weeks worth of snacks and some (laughs) warm water. And we drove all over the United States and stopped at historical markers and museums, stayed in cities. But then we also went to national parks whenever they were around. And so much of my experience with national parks, I mean, Rocky Mountain National Park was sort of right in my backyard. We didn't go there all that often. So it seemed like a special treat and kind of part of something that we did together as a family, something that was about moving through a landscape. Uh, and, you know, I'm sort of obsessed. And if, if you have read multiple books of mine, you'll see that thread running through the sort of people always on the move. They're walking through landscapes. They're, uh, you know, moving from, from location to location, kind of trying to assert themselves in those places. Uh, and that comes directly from, from my past, my summer vacation past. So so there was that. And so I had a fairly uncomplicated, pretty joyous relationship with national parks and and wilderness until graduate school, which I'm sure, Brian, doesn't surprise you because that's, you know, it's graduate school when for most of us, you know, the scales come off the eyes. You're like the glass, the rose colored glasses come off, get whipped off and thrown into the corner. Uh, and I read William Cronin's The Trouble with Wilderness uh, and then also Carl Jacoby's Crimes Against Nature, which really those are two foundational texts, I think, for a lot of environmental studies scholars, uh, especially of my cohort and later. And then, you know, they just seem to make so much sense, right? Like here, oh, well, of course nature is constructed. Of course it involves pushing people off the land who have been stewards of the land for thousands of years. (laughs) Why have we not thought about this before? Why does none of the signage in national parks acknowledge any of this, you know? Um, So those were really the, that, that was the light bulb moment for me. And, and it's sort of like, and I, I think you probably know this too, when you have those moments, you just can never go back. Once you see the kind of darker history of conservation, you can't unsee it. You know, it, it's going on everywhere. uh, And in lots of different kinds of contexts. Totally, totally. I mean, there are a good number of books that tell the story of Yellowstone National Park. And there's a lot of books that also tell the story of reconstruction in America, of course. And you know, you've come along and you've really braided these stories together or, or you've shown that they are in large measure the same story. Um, you write in the prologue that Yellowstone was a perfect symbol of what the United States had become by 1871. What do you mean by that? Well, this was one of the big questions that I had about Yellowstone going into the project because, you know, there were other amazing, beautiful, sublime places in America that that Americans already knew about, right? I mean, they had already saved Yosemite, uh, you know, giving land over to the state of California in 1864. There was Niagara Falls. There were all kinds of other spaces that were that were being explored and mapped during this period. So why Yellowstone? And part of the reason I think it is, is that it is absolutely, absolutely unique in all the world. Uh, the geothermal fields in that segment of the park are the largest in the world. They have the most amazing diversity of features, tell us all sorts of interesting things about science. And so this was very convincing to Americans who really wanted to believe in their own exceptionalism, right, uh, at that moment. Um, but it was also a really weird place 
And it was a place, and I have found in all of my work, and this is also something that runs through all of the books that I've written, that that Americans are, are really drawn to strange landscapes. You know, things that, I mean, we're, we're definitely drawn to the sublime, but there is something uniquely appealing, I think, about a place that is both beautiful and terrible, right? Where it is just this gorgeous, amazing place. You become mesmerized by it, but then you can actually fall through the crust of the earth to your death, right? <laughs> and, and, and this was Yellowstone. And so for me in the project, it became, Yellowstone became both a place people were focused on, but also a larger metaphor for the country. And I think what I meant by that quote was that Yellowstone has this sort of combination of of beauty and terror. It has all of these things happening on the surface that are kind of indicating, but also hiding this vast turmoil under the surface. And in 1871, we're right in the middle of Reconstruction, right in the middle of a white uh, resurgence of white supremacy in the South, um, an escalating campaign against Native peoples in the West. And Yellowstone just seemed to me to be the perfect encapsulation of that tension, uh, that the federal government is actually trying to do some things that are protective for the people, that are providing things for the people, but that has that underlayer of darkness, of violence, um, you know, always kind of threatening to explode and show itself. Yeah. And, and so when you, when you try to tell the story, I mean, and you really tell it as a story, you narrate the book and it has, it really has three main characters. And I'd like to invite you to introduce them kind of one by one to our listeners and share why you chose them and what they do for you as a narrator. Um, the first and the one with whom I think we spend the most time in the book and probably is the least well known today is Ferdinand Hayden. And so who, who was he and, and what does he teach us about Reconstruction America? So Ferdinand Hayden appealed to me almost immediately because he's he's one of these people you love to write about as a historian because he's just, he's ambitious, he's self-absorbed, he's super competitive, he's very smart and extremely talented at a lot of interesting things, at lobbying, at writing for the people, kind of writing scientific literature for the people, almost single-handedly kind of invents the genre of popular science writing uh, in this moment. And so he was just this, this fascinating person. He grew up in poverty. He was a child of divorce. He ultimately found his way to Oberlin College because his family actually recognized how smart he was. Uh, and it was at Oberlin that he really discovered his love of science and of geology in particular. He discovered that he had two pretty unique talents. One was spotting fossils, which not something you think about every day that someone would actually have a talent for that. But apparently it's actually rather hard to recognize fossils in situ and see immediately their worth, right? For telling us about the age of the earth and about the development of the earth. And he was able to do that. He, from the very beginning, when he started collecting specimens, he was very successful at it because all of these scientists kind of were amazed by his ability. He also just really loved being outside and he would just, he had no real fear of any conditions that might be threatening to him physically that might, you know, put him in any kind of danger of disease or capsizing or anything. He just would, he would go out and he loved field research. So this put, put him in a really good position and he ended up 
working for uh, a lot of the big military surveys that were going out into the West in the wake of the Mexican-American War uh, in order to map and, and really understand all of this territory that had just come into the United States as a result of that conflict. And after the war, what Hayden's career kind of shows us is this interesting shift from that military leadership of surveys to a civilian leadership of surveys uh, that would ultimately lead to the creation of the USGS as a kind of part of the federal government. It wasn't quite happening yet. Hayden had to lobby. This is another one of his talents. He had to lobby every year for funding. Uh, Once he kind of took control uh, of the Nebraska survey in the late 1860s, every year he had to go back to Congress to ask for more money. Um, to take more scientists along. Uh, and so finally, he was able in 1871 to convince members of Congress uh, to actually give him $40,000, which was a huge amount of money at that point, it was more than he had ever made ever <laughs> as a scientist. Um, and he really felt like he was coming into his own. But it was it was very important for Hayden not only to quote unquote, discover Yellowstone, kind of for white America and for science, uh, but also to establish himself as a leader in the field, as a scientist of renown uh, and of an, uh, you know, as an explorer who maybe could then beat out a lot of his rivals, who included Clarence King and John Wesley Powell, um, (laughs) who he hated, who he hated. And so... Hayden was really giving me a really good um, sense, not only of the kind of evolution of science and scientific understanding at this point, but also of the federal survey system. And then he was also just giving me a really good personal story because he's, you know, he's one of these guys who has his eyes on the prize <laughs> constantly. And that enabled me to then talk about, as as you're saying, kind of the meat and potatoes of, of the conservation movement and and what it actually took to get a national park created. Thank you. That's great. And uh, the next main character we meet is the financier Jay Cook. Um, His name doesn't ring out as it once did, you know, but he still makes it into the textbooks, of course, Um, but not in relationship to Yellowstone typically. And so what's his connection to that place and why is it important? Yeah, I ran into Jay Cook really early on and he's another fascinating guy. You know, he is around the same age, a little bit older um, than Hayden. All of these guys are kind of middle-aged guys, too. They're all in their kind of 40s and 50s. Uh, And he had grown up in Ohio. He'd gone to Philadelphia pretty early uh, as a teenager to work as a clerk. He had a real mind for numbers and a real intuitive sense of business. And by the beginning of the Civil War, he had started his own investment bank, which is another one of these kind of new things. I mean, I think... We consider, you know, we were like, oh, Morgan Stanley and, you know, all of these, all of these banks we already have and are already part of our culture, but they were very new uh, on the eve of the Civil War. And he actually made his fortune and his national reputation selling U.S. Civil War bonds to fund the Union War effort. And he, so he became famous for that. Uh, and he also became incredibly wealthy. So in the years after the war, he was really searching, you know, he had all the money he needed. He had this huge house outside of Philadelphia. He had this fabulous vacation home uh, called Gibraltar uh, in Lake Erie, uh, where he would go to fish two times a year. And so he was really searching for another national project, another project of national scope that would be patriotic, that would, again, bring him renown. See, so here's how he and Hayden are sort of copacetic in this regard. Like they they are similar personalities in, the, in that sense is that they really 
wanted public recognition for these, you know, acts of service to the nation. And, um, and he took over in 1870, the financing role for the Northern Pacific Railroad. And as part of that effort, you know, the Northern Pacific was chartered to be the Centennial Line. It was supposed to be finished in 1876 to celebrate the centennial of the country. And the thought was it was going to go from the Great Lakes to the Pacific through a a region of the country referred to then as the Great Northwest. So Cook was trying to sell bonds to fund this railroad. Uh, You know, as, as I think a lot of U.S. Western historians and environmental historians know, railroads are terrible investments. Um, They are amazing technological wonders that change the face of the country, but they are really terrible. Uh, And Cook just couldn't really see that. He was almost blinded from the very beginning by the importance of that project. Uh, And he was trying to sell bonds and he was failing to sell bonds. And the track was supposed to go kind of right north of Yellowstone. So when he heard about the Hayden expedition, he was super interested. He had his marketing manager, his PR guy, uh, A.B. Nettleton, send uh, Hayden a letter basically saying like, hey, tell us what you find. We'd love to use, you know, whatever information you have in our promotional materials for the Northern Pacific. He also sent him Thomas Moran. And this is one of the ways in which he really made an impact, uh, not only on the history of conservation, but also the history of American art, uh, because Thomas Moran, of course, goes, uh, joins the survey sort of midstream and ends up from that trip painting some of his most recognizable canvases, including Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, which he sells to the U.S. Congress for $10,000 in 1872. Uh, It's the cover of the book for good reason. Um, It's a beautiful painting. It's enormous. Uh, And and Cook knew one of his kind of elements of genius was that he understood marketing. He understood advertising. And he knew how important visual images were to communicating the value of natural landscapes in American culture. And so, uh, you know, he sent Moran, he wanted in exchange a bunch of watercolor paintings of the region that he could use to promote the Northern Pacific. Uh, what he ended up actually doing was provoking uh, the Lakota, uh, whose homelands he was trying to build tracts uh, through, and also driving his own investment bank into the ground and bringing about the Panic and Depression of 1873. Whoops. So Whoops. it's not a happy story. No. Not a happy story for Cook. <laughs> I was thinking about the Freedmen's Bank, too. You know, the $5 million of yeah. former slaves' money that he mm-hmm. also squanders in the process. Yes. Oh. Yep. A mess, um, but you're, but mm-hmm. not really a happier topic. But your final main character is Sitting Bull, the Lakota leader, um, and and he's of course a political figure, an important political figure in his own right. But also narrating this portion of his life is just one of the many ways that you place Yellowstone within the broader context of Native worlds. And so, I, I, what do you want people to know about how Native people shaped the story of Yellowstone? Well, first, I want people to know that Yellowstone was, and still is, an indigenous land. Uh, Multiple native groups had been moving through Yellowstone, camping there, hunting there for thousands of years. Uh, There were already, by the time Hayden got to Yellowstone, there were three reservations already on the periphery, Wind River and Fort Hall and the Crow Reservation. Uh, So that indicates to you there is native presence uh, (laughs) and those peoples were you know, crossing into the park to to hunt and to gather uh, 
plants to do everything that they had traditionally done uh, in that space in the past. And when Hayden went into Yellowstone, he was following indigenous paths. I mean, you see this in all of their writing. He's like, oh, and then we turned up this other path. And it's like, (laughs) oh, I wonder who blazed that trail. Um, Indigenous peoples did. Uh, And Lakotas lived uh, further down the Yellowstone River. The the Yellowstone River comes out of the park in the north, or what is now the park, in the north and makes this big, huge arc and and moves east through Montana before it joins up uh, with the Missouri River. And it moves through Lakota land. And because uh, Jay Cook was getting more and more active in that area, trying to build track. Uh, Sitting Bull and his Hunkpapa Lakota really started to increase their acts of resistance against not only Northern Pacific surveyors, but also U.S. Army soldiers and any white migrants who were trying to cross through their lands. Uh, They had started to exert their, you know, felt they had to exert their sovereignty against Americans starting in the early 1860s with the Montana gold rush, with all these miners trying to cross their lands, and they were having none of it, uh, and succeeded in shutting down the Bozeman Trail uh, by 1868. And then in this period, basically entered negotiations with the U.S. government, told them in the fall of 1871, look, stop sending people through here you know, uh, and if you don't stop them, we will stop them, right? And the the U.S. Indian agents kept trying to tell them, you know, the Northern Pacific is, it's just going to happen. You know, you might as well try to stop a storm from coming, right? Uh, but they, they were having none of it. They're like, no, actually, we will stop it. And they did, in fact, uh, in two major battles in the summer of 1872, uh, and then a fight with Custer in 1873. They put a a pretty effective end to the construction of the Northern Pacific. Uh, And, but in so doing kind of provoked the U S government, which started to ramp up campaigns against them during this period. Uh, But this all leads this engagement with the Yellowstone and and the struggle for control over this particular uh, part of the region really led to the Battle of Greasy Grass, to Little Bighorn in 1876. Um, and so I see that in a kind of larger, a larger context of an indigenous world that itself is changing in this moment, um, but also persisting and surviving. Thank you. Yeah. And, and if your book had a fourth main character, it would probably be Ulysses S. Grant. Um, and, and, you, know, you split time between the West and D.C. quite heavily in the book. Um, but you also spent a surprising amount of time in South Carolina for a book about Yellowstone. <laughs> yes. um, and you identified yes. that those same years, that 1871, 1872, we had the Yellowstone Expedition and the subsequent Preservation Act, and then also the Enforcement Acts and the prosecution of the Klan in, in the South. Um, as, a, as we call it, an extraordinary moment when the federal government acted out of a higher sense of purpose in both the West and the South. And so I, I would love for you to tell listeners more about, about that moment and other parallel developments um, in federal interventions in this era, both in both areas. Sure. Yeah. And I, I love that you said that because Grant actually was the fourth protagonist uh, for a long time. And there were many more chapters devoted to him uh, and to other parts of his administration. But as often happens, uh, and I know listeners will understand this too, when you, you know, you complete the book and you go back and you're revising and you're just like, this is not working in the way that I would like it to be working. Uh, So Grant had to take a little bit more of a a backseat 
Um, but I wanted to keep him in there and I wanted to give readers a really full sense of what the Grant administration was doing in this period from 68 to 76, because I think it's a really underrated presidency. I mean, most of the time we're talking about Grant and corruption and how he just wasn't a particularly good president. And that may be true, but uh, his at his best moments, uh, he really, you know, as you're saying, are kind of moving toward this higher purpose. And Grant, one of the things Grant really believed in was sustaining the federal government's commitment to protecting the constitutional rights of newly freed um, enslaved people in the South. So that 4 million Black Southerners now had rights under the 14th and 15th Amendment. Pretty much right as the war ends, white Southerners try to to undermine those rights. Um, And so Grant saw that as an act of rebellion, actually. And so he was really in his sweet spot because he was best when he was able to act like a general, right? That he was able to use his military expertise. And so it's in this moment as Hayden is coming back from the Yellowstone expedition that Grant initiates a full-on prosecution campaign against the KKK uh, in South Carolina. And Congress had been gathering all kinds of testimony the summer before, like as Hayden was in Yellowstone. And this is one of the interesting things that I can that I think connects the two regions. One is, you know, this assertion of federal power on behalf of the people in a preservation effort for a natural landscape and then also to, to help preserve constitutional rights. Um, but they also kind of launched this effort to really track and take down and record the details of life in a particular region. So it's fascinating to me that the that Hayden's preliminary report of the expedition was published in February 1872, almost at the exact same moment, like within a week of the publication of the testimony that had been collected, uh, which gives voice a, which gave voice to hundreds of Black Southerners who had been victims of violence in the South. So there's this federal effort not only to kind of analyze and to understand what's going on in these two regions, but also to to write it down and to publish it and make it available to all Americans to read, which is an interesting thing. I mean, the history I did, I was doing kind of a deep dive into the history of, of, of federal reports, which you wouldn't think would be very interesting, but it was actually really fascinating. Um, yeah. So, so that's, that's one area. And then also, the, you know, there's a real effort here when Grant was elected, his campaign slogan was let us have peace. And he meant the North and the South, but he also meant, uh, Americans and Native Americans. And his vision was to bring the entire country together, uh, to bring the South back into the country politically and economically, to bring the West into the country uh, through scientific understanding, through the Native land dispossession, uh, and through these attempts to, to kind of take down a record of life in these, what seemed like two very disparate, very different regions, uh, but are really kind of coming together at this pivotal moment in Reconstruction. Thank you so much. And you mentioned earlier about about Ferdinand Hayden as being kind of innovating popular science writing. And and you mentioned in the book also that he, you know, he understood the importance of writing for his colleagues, his, his reports and, and, and his findings, but he also believed in the power of popular writing. 
and I couldn't help but read that and think about you. <laughs> um, and, and because after, after publishing your first two books for academic presses and you have these, you know, unparalleled, you know, this is really uh, un, unimpeachable academic credentials and, and scholarly credentials, you turned to working with trade presses, you know, I think in all, I think most historians like to imagine themselves as being able to write accessibly for a popular audience, but you're actually, actually doing it. Um, <laughs> and not, not to throw shade at anybody else, but um, what has that transition been like for you um, as a writer and a historian? Yes. Well, that transition um, kind of coincided with my transition out of the academy, um, where I I left after 12 years of, of teaching and researching and began to try and make it as a full-time writer. So, you know, it was, it was a big leap in two very important ways. You know, my career was different. And then also I was experimenting with this new kind of writing style. And I had actually started experimenting a little bit earlier. Um, Brian Craig Miller had given me the opportunity to write a review for the the Journal of Civil War History um, of Hell on Wheels, the television show from a couple of years ago. And and there was the first season and it had a lot of Civil War content. There were a lot of veterans who were characters and the the good guy protagonist was a former Confederate and the bad guy was a former U.S. soldier. And I was like, something weird's going on here. And so um, he, he commissioned that review for me. And I don't know what it was about it. I just, I sat down and I wrote it in a completely different style than anything I'd ever written before. And I, I wrote it in one sitting and without notes, and it was just fun. And I thought, this is what it feels like to kind of write without restrictions, to write without expectations of a particular kind of structure, you know, because most academic texts, as we all know, you know, are very argument driven thematic chapters. I mean, my first two books are exactly like this. And I like those two books and I enjoyed writing them, but I was ready to start experimenting. And I thought I'd been thinking about writing about the Civil War in the Southwest. You know, again, I'm from Colorado. I had no idea there was a conflict out there when I was growing up. And so that interested me and I wanted to investigate it. And when I started figuring out all of the dimensions of the civil war in New Mexico and Arizona. I was like, you know what? I think this actually could be maybe a trade book. I think there could be some interest. And then I was thinking about how am I going to tell this story though? Like how might I conceptualize putting readers on the ground with individuals and encapsulating all that complexity, but also moving the story forward. And I, you know, I was a, a history and literature double major undergrad and an American studies PhD. And so inter- interdisciplinarity comes very naturally to me. And then also um, I, I read a lot of fiction and I also watch an embarrassing amount of television, <laughs> Brian. I do. I do. I and I, I love it. I love it. Some of it is just guilty pleasure. Sure. And then, some, you know, like, and right now I'm obsessed with the Olympics and I'm like, right. oh my yeah. God. Curling. Like, We're all curling experts how, right now. Yeah. How can I be expected to work, Brian, when <laughs> big air is on TV? I just can't, I can't do it. But but there are other elements of TV where where really they're experimenting with narrative form. And it's really interesting. And so I hit upon multi-perspective narrative. I thought, why don't I see what this might be like? And because I had left academia, I didn't have, I didn't have to, you know write a book for tenure. I didn't have to place articles in journals. And I was like, I can just write it how I want it. And 
when I started writing it, it was just so freeing. Like it was so liberating to just be able to sit down and like write scenes. Um, then the hard work came integrating those scenes into a historical argument, which is still there, right? It's not just all storytelling, um, but it was just really uh, a, a transformational moment for me, I think is the word I'm searching for, um, to really start writing the three-cornered war that way. And the Saving Yellowstone is not as, um, I mean, it's definitely multi-perspective. It's not, it, it is not as kind of strictly structured as three-cornered war in terms of you know, chapters being named for specific people. And usually people are more kind of in uh, in the chapter with one another and kind of working around one another a little bit more in Saving Yellowstone. But I, I continued my quest to kind of bring the landscape to the reader and give you a real sense of who these people were kind of in there as fully three-dimensional people in their time and space. I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, I've, I've had many writers on the show over the last two years who have had their books launch or promotional tours interrupted by COVID, but I think you're the first guest who was booted out of the archives because of COVID. Um, how did you manage the enormous disruption and then live to tell the tale here on this joyous pub day, almost, uh, yeah. almost exactly two years later? <laughs> um, yes. Oh, what, what a journey. Um, th this has been, um, I started writing Saving Yellowstone in the summer of 2019. So, I had already written a couple of chapters and then I went for the first big research trip to the National Archives in College Park in March of 2020. And yes, on that Thursday, got the very bad news from someone that they were, you know, already people were putting on the hand sanitizer and, and doing all of that and nobody knew what was happening. And then the, someone came by and just said, yeah, we're shutting down. And I like launched into, I was like running, Brian. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in, in Naira too. They don't encourage high speed movement. Yeah. <laughs> they don't really encourage running. They're like, would you please stop sweating? Like all over the, um, I was, I was basically jumping in the elevator and I was going to like photographs and maps and manuscript, like just running around, just like putting in call slips and trying desperately to get as much as I could before I was kicked out. You know, I don't think anyone knew how long it was going to actually be, um, you know, and I had just, you know, Three Cornered War had just been published. I was still doing events for that, which then got canceled. Um, so that was a, a pretty dire time. Um, but I had, I had a couple things happening for me that enabled me to, to write the book in this amount of time. Um, one was that I am a full-time writer. So, you know, this is my job. I am not teaching. I am not, you know, I do not have any other work responsibilities that are taking time out of my day. Um, also, I don't have kidlets. So I was not experiencing that particular trauma of the, the pandemic of kind of here are these kiddos, like, what are we going to do with them? How are they handling this? Um, you know, I, so that part, um, you know, again, gave me time to really focus. Um, I also kind of discovered about myself and I didn't really know this <laughs> until this happened, uh, that I do actually have a pretty good compartmentalization, uh, skill, which, so that I could watch, you know, the January 6th insurrection and then turn it off and go and do more research for the chapter I needed to write. Um, you know, 
that that probably has consequences um, in my personal and professional life, but it actually was helpful in this context for for actually getting the work done. And I was working under a hard deadline um, because you know March first, twenty twenty two, is the one hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the Yellowstone Act, and woohoo! Hooray! Um, and we knew we wanted to hit that deadline, and so that meant that I had to complete the manuscript by March of twenty twenty one. And, you know, again, when we started the whole pandemic process and the lockdown, we didn't know how long it was going to last. You know, I had a research trip to Yellowstone scheduled for May 2020, got canceled, uh, rescheduled for September 20, got canceled. Um, so actually didn't make it to Yellowstone until after the copy edits phase of the book. Oh, wow. So, yeah. What was it like, and what was that's it like going not, back? Oh, well that, I mean, let me just say, I don't ever want to do this again. Like I managed to do it, but I don't want to ever, I don't want to be writing under a short deadline and I don't want to be writing in a pandemic ever again. Um, because that's not, it's not a good process. I mean, I think, I think I did okay. And I had, you know, thank God so many of the sources that I had were digitized. Um, you know, lots of library of Congress, national archives, um, just general, um, you know, newspapers.com, which you have to pay for, but is oh, amazing resource. So I had enough documentation. I still had my National Archives research to really put the book together. Um, and I was really lucky in that way. I mean, I don't think if I, if I had had a project that was really, really reliant on archival sources, I'm not sure I could have finished. Um, but, you know, again, thank you, Federal Records, um, for being freely available to the people uh, because I, I actually had access to them. But it was such a joy to go to Yellowstone and to to see all the places where Hayden's team had been. You know, um, and of course I was making, we were driving through and I see the sign for Hayden Valley and I was like, oh, I did it. So I made my husband like swerve over to the side of the road and I like jump out and I've taken selfies. And of course there's a, there's a, uh, there was a kind of pullout a little bit of ways away. And I was like, oh, I wonder if this tells the story of Hayden and the expedition. No, no, it was telling the story of the valley and the, the wildlife there but not Hayden. And I was like, oh, he'd be so mad. He would be so <laughs> mad that he did not get, you know, okay, yeah, name it after me, but then don't tell everyone why, right? And he would have been mad too about Roosevelt getting hogging all the attention in the Northeastern Quadrant. Come on, he would have been yeah. like, you did nothing. <laughs> you did nothing except come here and give a speech and save some other lands, but we're not going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think Three Corner War came out in February of 2020, right? So, so you have two books to take on the road now if, if the variants uh, abate and we're allowed to get out there. Um, and so I hope this keeps you very busy and doing all these events. And, and I hope you we can give a talk at, at Yellowstone. I hope, you, I, hope I, I love thinking about the book there in the, book sh in, in the bookstore forevermore. That's wonderful. Um, but, uh, but when that settles down, I wonder if, are, are there any future projects you have in your mind that you're willing to tell people about? I know it can be very early, but. Yeah. Well, I am already uh, working on the next book, which is called, I know, we'll see, but see, again, this is my full-time job. Um, so uh, that's sort of what you have to do. So we we were pitching this book in September. Yeah. So, uh, so this book is called The Westerners, uh, and it is a kind of big, it's going to be a bigger time frame. You know, the previous two books are sort of eight years 
two years. Uh, and this one is going to be, you know, from the early 19th century to the 1880s. So it's going to be a broader sweep. It's still going to be uh, biographically based. So there'll be eight people who you will meet. Um throughout the course of the book, who are demonstrating um, that they are Westerners and not pioneers. So this is meant to be a book that is pushing against the pioneer myth, the frontier myth, uh, and really proving that the West is a place of great mobility. So here's another um, <laughs> of movement through space uh, and people moving in all directions. So from south to north, west to east, north to south, uh, and people staying in place who have been there all along. Well, that's very exciting. Um, thank you for sharing that with us, and we'll all keep our eyes out for that down the road. The book, again, is Saving Yellowstone, Exploration and Preservation and Reconstruction America. Its author, my guest, is Megan Kate Nelson. Its publisher is Scribner. It comes out today on the anniversary of the Yellowstone Act. So go grab your copy now. Megan, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's been great.